Hey everyone, it's George Kuros and welcome to the June highlights from the Innovators Mindset podcast. And I had a lot of great guests and you're going to be able to see them right away. But I just wanted to share a little message with you as I know many of you uh, across, you know, North America at least are, are finishing up school. And I just want to say thank you uh, for all that you did this year. I, I can't even imagine how uh, overwhelmed you are. And I hope that you get to do exactly what you want to be doing. I know some people maybe don't like, you know, taking a break. They want to get out and, you know, do something else. And so whatever it is that you want to do right now, I hope you're having that opportunity to do it. And I appreciate you taking the time uh, to listen and be here right now. But I wanted to share something that really helped me through uh, this school year. Uh, it's just announced that Alberta is opening up. And, you know, you kind of see some some lights, uh, you know, as we move forward into the next school year, into the summer. But I read a post by Patrick Larkin in March of 2020, and he shared this gratitude challenge. And what he shared was this, is find one thing each day that you're grateful for that you that would not have been possible if we, if we were not in these uni unique circumstances. <clears throat> Parents, ask your children to do the same. Share these with one another each evening. Let's try to take focus away from all the things we can't control on focus what we can one another. And that post, when I first read it, I was kind of like thrown off a little bit because I said, this is like a really hard time. You know, how can we focus on being grateful? But then it really helped me to actually do the exercise that Patrick shared because it made me focus less on myself and how can I help others. And one of the ways that I wanted to help others was to you know have all these great guests and and you know hopefully um expose more people to the people that follow me and to connect with me and i feel so blessed that i've been able to talk to all these people um and connect and share but i also want to share this gratitude that i have for you for taking the time to listen I, I educators are so incredibly busy and how honored i am that anyone is taking time to, to listen to this, uh, to watch this right now. And I just want to say thank you for all that you do. And finding gratitude in those things that I do each day has really helped me kind of get through this, hopefully grow um, a little bit, not only uh, professionally, but personally. And I don't think I could have done that without connecting with so many of you uh, over this last you know year or so. And I look forward to continuing this podcast um, when there's, there's not a pandemic happening. And, you know, uh, we're, we're creating that new and better normal together. So I just wanted to say thank you for all you do. Thank you for being here today and taking that time to less, listen. I hope you have exactly that time today uh, doing what you want to do. And so welcome back to the highlights from the Innovators Mind podcast, uh, June 2021. So we had, you know, we're, we're back in school. Some people are some type of hybrid learning. We really haven't figured it out yet. And we haven't figured it out in a couple of areas. The first one is um, addressing what may be a perceived or an actual like learning loss, mm -hmm. right? And also the other area is, you know, returning back to school in person in some form or fashion. How do we set that up? What does that look like? How do we build the supports necessary so that people are ready to accept coming back in person, right? Like mm -hmm. where are people at, you know, mentally, you know, in terms of being able to accept that responsibility. There's been a lot of people that during this time, they haven't left their homes. You know, there's people that, right. you know, haven't ex been involved in other activities with other people. 
There's been there's mm -hmm. been educators that have made decisions about whether or not they will return back to the profession that they decided to get into or not. And there's some people that have no choice, right? They 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 need to work. They don't have the flexibility, their opportunities to walk away, even if they don't feel well or don't want to. And so I think we just need to have that lens every time we think about decisions that we make. Um, think about planning for next year, for the upcoming school year. You know, um, what is that going to look like? You know, do we have supports in place for our students? And our, do our educators know? Because it's, it's going to be a while until things flatten out for the most point in terms of really getting our footing and understanding what school is going to look like mm -hmm. moving forward. Um, so I think that's, you know, if we can get to a place where we as a leaders um, are able to recognize that and then act on it. And some of that is sharing some of our own vulnerability. So people yep. understand that we, we get it. I think that it'll begin to build that social capital that's necessary to create, to create a, a environment that's conducive for success. So, the, and like you just said something that really reminded me of you, right? Your willingness to share your vulnerabilities, your willingness to share your story and all that you've done really puts at the center. And this is something I've been saying for a long time, but you really reminded me of this in your work and my connecting with you is that when you take care of people, stuff will get done. But if you focus too much on the stuff, you will lose people. And I think that to me, I think that's why I really so appreciated connecting with you, uh, really building our friendship over time. And just, I really look forward to watching you con to continue to inspire people, not only to really kind of take a step back and focus on how they can take care of themselves, but really in that, how they do that to take care of others. From the work that I've read, not only, uh, you know, from your prior book, but from your blog, I think you both do that really well, is that you make it where like, oh, like that's, I can do that. You know what I mean? I think and I, like, is, is that like, is that something like if you take something like, like I'm going to get, put you on the spot here. Like what's like a complex thing that you've made simple that, you know, someone listening to that teaches grade five, you know, can do right away, like, and connect this. And I know that you can't like, Hey, just do this one thing. And you, you're, you, you're project-based, you know, project-based certified. Right. But like, what's like a simple idea that, you know, people can do right away. Yeah. So, so the idea is like a lot of times we have this idea and, and you've, you've written about this before, like, mm -hmm traditional practices like yep. we, we vilify traditional practices as bad and i think i think um when we do that um we're not always respecting the work that came before us but we're right. painting things in terms of like black and white mm -hmm. so a lot of times we do that with more progressive practices either you're doing like project-based learning genius hour design mm -hmm. things or you're doing something else which, which isn't as good right? right um so it's this whole idea where a lot of times with inquiry-based learning and project-based learning and I know we started out this way. We would look at that and say, this is wonderful. Our kids need to be learning through investigation and exploration. And anybody who's doing direct instruction, like that's right. terrible, right? right? Like there's no place for that. And, and of course, like the answer lies somewhere in between because it's not about us trying to be progressive. It's about <laughs> the needs of our students, right? right? So this whole idea of how might you infuse direct instruction into project-based learning. Mm -hmm. so, so to boil that down into something that you could easily wrap your head around, we uh, categorize direct instruction during project-based learning into three different categories, proactive, reactive, and learning detours. 
and proactive is like, you know, the majority of your kids are going to need this. Mm -hmm. So you're going to take it ahead of time before the project itself or right before they're going to need it within the context of the project. Reactive is like, oh my gosh, like as I'm teaching this project, I have found that the majority of my students now need to learn this concept or skill or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. So now mm -hmm. I'm going to teach it, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's in small groups or whether it's class-wide. And then learning detours is basically when students take their project in different directions based on maybe their passions or interests or any phenomenon that they might bump into during the project. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the space, I'm going to give space to my students so they could explore those passions and interests and phenomenon rather than saying to them, no, sorry, that's not what we're right. doing. Right. No time and place for that. So it, it's also like, I'll take it in the other direction. Like you said, sometimes we can make it complex. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned is that like, there's a difference between making something simple and then also like simplifying it, right. which is like dumbing it down. Right. 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 So you could take it in both directions. So we're also making sure that as we're communicating something like this, somebody um, with deep knowledge of PBL, hopefully won't be like, well, that's not true. Or you're taking something that right. really is important and, and that, that that's not right. Or, or that, that's just, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I think it could go in like both directions, but, there's there's an example right there that um, that we often use and it's in the book as well. So when you, when you okay so when like someone listening to this and Aaron I'll, I'll ask you this question someone listening to this uh, they they hear project based learning and they say oh this is like a fad right like this is like this is like the cool thing now uh, this is going to be for whatever and then we're either going to do something totally different or we're going to call it something else but it's really kind of project-based learning but like with a little tweak you know like how is this not just like a thing that we're doing now and how is this like something you know like everything i think evolves over time right like i you know i think the way that we look at relationships with our students always been important but the way that we connect with our students especially people going in virtual spaces how we connect online those things evolve and we change them, but we, it's always the constant as relationships are important. So like, how do you see this as a constant, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now? How do, how do you look at that? Um, you know, with project based learning? Sure. So Ross is going to be super jealous because this is one of his favorite things to explain. Mm -hmm. So feel free to jump in if you think I'm not doing it justice, right. well, you know, <laughs> but essentially like Project-based learning, it is a thing, right? Like we've right. now put a label on project-based learning, but it's, what it is, is a series of best practices that have been put together in a context, like in a, in context. Right. So it's the, it's the concept of, um, all like these, these best practices. So providing direct instruction in small chunks within the context of your project. Right. Um, it is ensuring that there's collaboration. It is ensuring that kids are getting feedback. Um, so all of these things that should exist in mm -hmm. any class, because we know that they're what are good, what's good for kids, um, are all part of project-based learning. And it's just how you put them together. Uh, so they do have staying power. And I would also right. point to the fact that project-based learning was actually a term that was coined in the late 70s. So... Mm -hmm. It's already been around for a while. Um, I don't think it's going to, I think it's past its fad phase. Right. Um, just what's best. I call that marinating. You yeah. need some time to marinate. Yeah. 
don't don't be quick so quick to throw the, the meat on the grill you got to let it marinate first you got to mm -hmm. actually um, think about it you got to take in the information and make sure you really understand what it is and then do a little fact checking mm -hmm. um i think with social media especially like the 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 reaction for people to just quickly post or comment right. um you know very few people feel in the long run like i'm really glad i posted that comment <laughs> most of the time right? like, oh, oh i wish i would have like That's you know true. like i didn't know that was a big scam when i right. posted or when i shared it and like mm, probably um take some time and and just don't have a quick rush to judgment <laughs> One of the things that Katie and I talked about is just the initiative overload in education. Mm -hmm. There's so much thrown at teachers. And wouldn't it be nice if they had frameworks that will be helpful for the life of their career and also frameworks that help them to navigate what is an evolving educational landscape, mm -hmm. right? So sure, the pandemic was awful. It had this um, big disruption on education, but that's there's no guarantees we couldn't end up in a similar situation in six months and a year and so as katie and i worked together it was like here are these principles and kind of tenets of universal design that are so important but they can be a little daunting to implement mm -hmm. generally and then also as teachers are kind of navigating this very fluid situation where they're online, they're in class, they're a blend of the two. So how do we help them understand how to take these universal design principles and these tenants and actualize them using these different models, which from my perspective, and it was so exciting working with Katie, because I'm like, I'm all about that teacher realizing that our value isn't in our subject area expertise. Mm -hmm. It's not us at the front of a physical or virtual room. It's us connecting with learners. It is that human side of teaching that is so critical. And we need to lean on these models in order to have more opportunities to connect with individual learners, small groups of learners, give them meaningful choices within the design, the facilitation of these learning experiences. So it was just this really beautiful compliment of, you know, anybody who learns about universal design, I mean, can't argue with how valuable that is. I think it's just mm -hmm. how do we implement it in a way that feels sustainable given all of the demands on teachers and this kind of changing landscape that we're in. Katie, you got, what do you got to add to that? Yeah. And I think another thing too, is that, you know, UDL as its core is, you know, right now people are designing learning experiences. Everyone mm -hmm. is designing learning experiences, but we're not providing students with equally relevant or valuable opportunities to learn. Mm -hmm. And that is because the way that we're designing wasn't, you know, it's not flexible enough to meet the needs of everyone. So, you know, are we looking for, I think that like there's this friction of talking about like, does this mean everyone's gonna have the same exact outcomes? Right. No, because we know about human variability. And, you know, there will always be people who are stronger at writing and there'll always be people who are taller and they'll always, you know, there is variability, but we shouldn't be able to predict outcomes mm -hmm. based on identity of students. Is that like, we wanna give equal opportunities to access instruction that is rigorous, instruction that allows students to learn and share what they know. Um, and then we'll have, you know, equal opportunities, equal access will result in higher levels of learning. But I think that some people want to throw this out because it's like, oh, there's never going to be a time that every single student performs in the same exact right. way. Well, that is correct because we are not right. robots. And so I think that understanding variability and knowing that 
when students don't have really solid, rigorous opportunities to learn, right. it's often because it just simply is not flexible enough. And when we can name those barriers and we can say, you know what, like we can actually design these differently, then more students will learn. So one like really generic example is um, you could say I'm a strong reader, you could label me as a strong reader, but that is only when you give me text in English and that is only when I'm wearing corrective lenses because I can't see without contact right. or glasses. Those just happen to be two things that are always provided to students. And so it's not that I'm a stronger reader. It's like the, the tools that I need are accepted in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And you know what we find with universal design is if a student, for instance, is not reading at grade level, the answer is not just give them a really easy text. It's do they need an audio version? Do they need to read it with a partner? Do we need to pre-teach vocabulary? And so I love the framework because it's thinking about what really are the barriers that students are facing and how can we eliminate those through design? But knowing that so many students are different, pulling small groups really is the answer. And we cannot give every kid what they need when we are meeting or facing 45 kids in a classroom mm -hmm. um, because they don't all need a printed book in English, you know, that, that they, right. can, they can see. So I think that if we want to meet the needs of all students, we need to leverage um, instructional design that is not only flexible enough for students to get what they need, but flexible enough to give us time with individual kids and in small groups to build those relationships and help them to recognize these are the tools that you need to advocate mm -hmm. for in your learning so you can be successful. When, when thinking about going to administration, I knew that Bayshore was the only place that I wanted yeah. to be an administrator in because of the way that you felt um, in the buildings. Mm -hmm. Everyone was pleasant. Everyone wanted to help you. And I wanted to keep that going as the school leader, where the culture that I cultivated was one where when someone walked through that front door, that they felt like they were already home, that mm -hmm. they were already mm -hmm. welcome, and that they were already a part of something, and that they mattered. Mm -hmm. Because all throughout my years, both you know, growing up as a kid and then um, teaching, I was in the shadows whether I put myself there or whether I was made to um, sort of know my place. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I just finished reading the book cast, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and they talk about sort of the, the um, situations that make people feel like, um, like they need to be silent more than they need to speak. And more about um, recognizing that when people feel heard, they actually contribute more mm -hmm. to the culture and environment because they then are empowered to do things, share things that at times they might have been silent about. Mm -hmm. And it's those different voices that I try to encourage and that um, I, I seek to make sure that I include. I, try to amplify the voices of the quietest person mm -hmm. in the room because I recognize that once I do that and once I support them and once I encourage that, that they excel far beyond what they themselves even thought mm -hmm. was possible. Well, they, they, so it's, it's interesting, like, you know, we like you kind of joke a little bit about the photocopier thing, but there's something really big about that, right? And when you say about how it's 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 like 
I want to be at a place where I feel appreciated, where it's, it's not just you say it, the actions line up. And it's like, it's like saying, oh, like we so appreciate teachers, like they're the best. And, but we need you to kind of spend all your own money and we need you to do this. And we're not going to really do these things. And so like, but we so appreciate you. (laughs) And it's like, well, not really. Like none of your actions are lining up with that. And I always talk about the difference uh, that there is a really important, and it's like you, you exemplified the story is that there is a difference between being valued and feeling valued. And when you did the photocopier thing, that was you feeling valued. And like, that's, that's what I want to be. And I think when we get that feeling, we want to create that for others too, where they have this, this, this is going to be, this isn't just, this is, I think this is just our school district, but this was a, such a subtle thing. It was just a little thing. And this might like throw off some people listening to this. So when I was a principal, every staff member had their own school credit card right like they had a legitimate their own credit card and they had a <laughs> and they had a, i'm not even kidding they had a they had like a certain I'm like what yeah they had a certain <laughs> limit of like what they would do so that they wouldn't like there was not even the step of like you go buy stuff and then we'll reimburse you it's like no you use a credit card and like if we see you're buying a sports car like we're gonna flag that and there's gonna be something there <laughs> and like you had to like you know say like yeah, i bought this blah 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 but it wasn't like we didn't even want that temporary and like just even thinking about it there's times in my career where like i was i had a thousand dollar overdraft and i was like always within 20 dollars of it at the end of each month so i couldn't spend an extra 25 bucks right on school supplies and like you know i like i remember that was something i really struggled with and so that was never something that a teacher had to deal with and we'd say like hey you got like an x amount of limit for the year but if you need to go beyond it just just come and talk to me and we'll like you know and so like little things like that make a difference and i think a lot of people when they um when they actually see that like when they actually um that little thing is something about making sure people feel appreciated you saw that um, that connection between like literacy, um, did you find like the students were actually quite literate, but just, it was like not a context they were using in school. Like how, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, going back to your, your question that, that you'd posed about mm-hmm. blog posts versus essay. I mean, I think it's all functional, right? That's what's mm-hmm. important to me as a teacher. I would say like, you know, what context are you going to need to write in? Mm-hmm. And what are, what context are you interested in learning to write in? Uh, most of the most of the like what I would characterize as literacy events or literacy skills that I have, I picked up through engagement mm-hmm. and I picked them up kind of because they were ambient. Right. They're in the spaces in which I engage. Right. I don't think most of them were taught to me in any rote or direct way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's what the kids were really doing. They're picking up on how to respond to the audiences in the spaces where they were interacting what the formats and forms of the different mm-hmm. types of communication were. And it's really learned through that social engagement with their peers. And I was thinking, you know, this could translate. You don't want to take and kind of colonize kids out of school literacy practices. There's right. nothing more off-putting than that, like for a right. high school student. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, looking at, okay, if social engagement works to teach literacy skills, how can we foster that in the classroom. Yeah, that, 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 I think that's such a, 
like the, um, the thing that I say to people is that I don't really think you have to teach keyboarding classes anymore. And those all oh, my kids don't type blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, have you ever taught like a keyboarding class on a, a phone? And they're like, no. I said, but do you see how fast kids are? Because they actually care. Right. Yes. And it's part of the context. It's part of the connection. So a lot of the, a lot of the, the reason behind that now, I don't have like, you know, research on this or anything like that, but like, other than what I see with my eyes, kids can just fly through this stuff because they care what they're doing. But then, uh, you know, like the Fox jump over the Brown hat or whatever, that's not, you know, that's not going to get kids excited about writing. And then they start like doing this on a computer or whatever, but when they text their friends, you know, like being fast is a way to stay in the conversation. So it, it, I, I appreciate that you say that because it is different context, right? Like how I write to a friend, write to my brother versus how I write a blog post versus write an email to someone I don't know. Those are all different things. I, I know how to kind of switch in and out, but it's like a lot of the things that we teach in, you know, a traditional, not a bad, but a traditional English class are really important in that facet. But there's also these other spaces too, where kids connect. don't live in a silo. Mm -hmm. I, I was, you know, the, that working so hard as a first year teacher and coming out of college, you feel like, oh, I've got these ideas. I can do this myself. I know what I'm doing. And you just put your head down and just, I just put my head down mm -hmm. and worked and didn't take the time to connect with other staff or really seek the help that I definitely needed definitely needed that help you know you mm -hmm. think after these methods classes you are good to go I had some wonderful student teaching experiences but really when you are there all the time in a new district um, with different people around you people wanted to support me but um, I felt like I could do it all on my own mm -hmm. and I really couldn't 